I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 25, Endings. Last episode we talked about beginnings of stories and how to construct a beginning that didn't either cheat the reader with kind of dark arts, writer dark arts, and was engaging. And we mentioned in a few of a few of the, those situations how beginnings and endings can kind of be tied together better. So this episode we're going to talk more about how to end stories, try to figure out ways to end them in satisfying ways. Yeah, in, end them in satisfying ways, or at least ways that are compelling in some other way. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of times that you can pick an ending that um, does not satisfy the reader but leaves them thinking. And I think that's one of the things that you usually want to do with an ending i mean you want to satisfy people but you want to you want to leave on the correct note you want to leave an impact of some kind besides yeah. annoyance yeah because i mean your ending is is what people will remember most probably mm-hmm. i mean they might remember some cool moment but i feel like people talk about endings a lot more than they talk about middles or beginnings i think part of that might be mitigated by the fact that usually people won't recommend a story to someone based on an ending but they might not recommend something to someone because of an ending, especially if they know that certain kinds of endings, certain people don't like certain kinds of endings. Like some people just don't like stories with, with sad endings, for example. Yeah. So they just, you know, if they have a friend that reads a story with a sad ending and they like it, they'll be like, yeah, it's a good story, but I don't think you would like it because the ending, you know, because I don't think you'd like the ending. And so they just won't read it because they, the ending isn't their cup of tea. But other there are other, other kinds of endings that people shy away from two that we'll go over yeah this is going to be a very spoiler heavy episode so i'm going to try to keep a running list of all the stories that we talk about like usual in the show notes and if you uh, want to check the show notes out before you listen any further so you can just make sure that there's nothing on your immediate reading list coming up soon or ever even and you can just come back to this episode after you've finished reading all the ones that you care about we'll try to stay away from anything too terribly recent mm-hmm you you don't want to talk about the ending to something like the day after the season finale or or right when the last book comes out. Right, right. So endings very important because they're what the reader walks away from, mm-hmm. right? It's like the last. It's a recency effect basically. But one of the big constraints that you're working with with endings is that's, I guess, the most constrained part of writing like a novel or a short story or whatever. Because you've you've built up your characters and your foreshadowing and stuff, and you have to sort of close all the parentheses that you've opened, mm-hmm. or at least most of them. That's kind of, that we'll we'll talk about ambiguity and endings later. But yeah, I agree. If there's any kind of objective metric to how satisfying an ending is, it tends to be the ones that wrap up the most threads in the story, at least to the degree that they're acknowledged. Right, an unsatisfying ending. Uh, on an objective metric scale would be one that doesn't resolve anything it just it's like if you could if if you could imagine a story where it just stops and doesn't seem to have any kind of resolution to any of the plot threads let alone the major conflict that would be just the worst possible ending to a story like the author just kind of just gave up and and just decides to stop writing i don't know how many published books have that kind of ending but there are certainly a few that are close to it. Whereas on the other side of the scale, you could have endings that resolve the major conflict and all the little character arcs uh, like are, are to have, have some completion on them. Uh, if there are any hanging, hanging questions left, there's at least acknowledgement of them. And, you know, people are, are giving the impression that they will continue to think about them and work on them and things like that. Yeah. You can, you can go a little too pat, with that, mm-hmm. we talked last time about the ending to Harry Potter. Yes, uh, where it just it just tries to 
it gives two. In, it, yeah, it gives it gives you all these this detail that you don't need first of all, and then it's it's trying to wrap everything just so tight at the end that you feel like you're being strangled. Super super happy ever after to the infinite degree. Yeah, not quite. I'm 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 being a little hyperbolic. Like there are some stories that literally do that in terms of like the ending to the Chronicles of Narnia is literally just like everyone goes to an infinite heaven of ever ascending beauty and joy and happiness and forever and ever which is a little saccharine for a lot of people i think maybe not so much on first read depending on your sensibilities i, I don't want to say how old you are because you know it's unfair to to assume that only kids would be satisfied with that kind of ending some kids wouldn't be satisfied with that kind of ending and some adults very much would and that's totally fine but in terms of an ending that is too complete in its resolution that can be a danger that that fantasy stories especially can can run across yeah, six feet under is the sort of downer side of that. I mean, it's not it's not a downer, but they show you the death of every major character, right? However far into the future from the season finale that is, which is sort of a way of wrapping up everything in a, what I thought was a really clever way. But yeah, Harry Potter. I think my issue with it was mostly that you know everyone gets paired off, and I don't know, it was too much for me. Yeah, if I can put it into words, for me it would be like not only was it giving everyone a concrete happy ending for their personal lives but it was also making it was making it unambiguously clear that for this amount of time at least because obviously there's been since there has since been a uh, play that I never read or watched but I've heard mixed reviews of um that you know goes takes the story in a, in a it continues the story with their children uh, but up to this point at the very least nothing else of note happens which for a 20-year gap from the ending is a pretty big statement, right? It's not like two years later, everyone's happy. It's not like 10 years later, everyone's happy. Like, for 20 years, things just go great for everyone, supposedly. Like it's it's a bit much. It shuts down too many ideas for... Like, you want your story to be complete, but I don't know how much you want your readers to feel like the characters are done. Yeah. You know? like they, Like, they just don't exist anymore after a certain point because there's nothing else for them to do. There's nothing else for them to say. Their stories are complete. And I feel like jumping too far in the future to give that kind of uh, epilogue does that. I think for me, I'd like a ending that resolves all the conflicts and resolves all the character arcs, but at least gives me some hint as to what a sequel would be about. Mm -hmm. Right? For the Harry Potter series, I thought a lot of it would be like government stuff or like being an Auror or something. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of skips past all that, I guess. It seems like there, that if you wanted to write fan fiction about Harry Potter that, like, happened within that 20-year gap, you're kind of stuck now. Yes, yes. Unless you want to, like, change major details, which obviously is an option. But it penned a lot of things in and I think checked too many boxes. I like a tiny bit of... Open-endedness. Open-endedness and, like, a hint at future conflicts. So, so long as it's not, like, I don't know, there there's some, like, horrible sequel hooks that you see from time to time especially a lot of authors will do this if the if there's sort of like fishing for a sequel mm -hmm. the most blatant of which obviously tends to come from the horror genre yeah where the monster literally just comes back or some second level of monster appears or like camo pan to like a bunch of eggs or whatever it is that just shows you know this isn't over that is a bit too blatant it's not really a satisfying sequel hook because it doesn't usually come from any kind of implications or consequences of what occurred it's just information that the writers 
could, could either could cleanly put in or remove, irregardless of what happens with the rest of the story. A good sequel hook for me is one where, because of the consequences of what happened in the story, or just a natural progression of it, you know that there are other conflicts looming or or possible in the future, and the author the the characters can acknowledge this while still being happy and satisfied with the, the way things have have gone. Yeah, I don't want to get hyped for the next movie at the end of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, Back to the Future, the end of the first movie, they didn't have a plan for movies mm-hmm. two and three, so they just sort of stuck this hook on at the end where Doc Brown comes down. He's like, oh, it's not you, Marty, it's your kids, and they fly off. I mm-hmm. liked that. Mm-hmm. Just because it was, it definitely opened up, like, that was a blatant sequel hook, because it was, like, all the all the main threads of the movie had been closed off. Right. But they they just sort of threw the sequel hook on. What I actually thought was that something that he'd done in the past had screwed up something, uh, and Doc Brown like realized it and came back and 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 told him and basically had to go and fix it now. So I was I was I was okay with that ending too. I was I was happy with that kind of like oh shit like time travel isn't isn't as simple as you think it is. Yeah. Fun Back to the Future fact: they actually ran into some writing problems because they didn't want Marty's girlfriend Jennifer along. When they were like writing the second movie, they were like, "Why did we bring her along? Why did we put her in the in this car at the end of the first movie? Because mm-hmm. now we don't we have no use for her. So she just gets like knocked out and put in a closet or something. Situation. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Doc Brown has like a, a spray or something that he chloroforms her. I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> weird, but they ran into a lot of problems because they had no plans when they did that. So right. <laughs> so yeah, I think that they're like you need to. Resolve your main conflict, you need to resolve your character arcs, and you need to fire all of your Chekhov's guns and anything that looks like a gun to the reader, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that's there's some dangerous territory now, and we'll go on first, I'll, I'll get back to it. Yeah, right, because you can't always know what right. it is an important thing. I think a lot of times, um, authors especially, because you have a lot more room on the page, you run into this problem where you just include things because you think they're cool. And people are like, oh, that's going to come back at some point. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't, they're like, well, whatever happened to that one thing? Why, why was this one character introduced? And then he, had, he, he seemed like he had this cool backstory. Right. And then we never hear from him again. Or they get hurriedly killed off in a very unsatisfying way, is the way the author right. acknowledges that problem and then poorly deals with it, I would say. Yeah, and you can you can do some, like, oh, it's a commentary on the meaningless of night, meaninglessness of of life and, you know. <laughs> or just a part of the gritty nature of the, the, the story itself. There's a lot of... We're, we're defying narrative conventions here. Yeah. So, to get into some Game of Thrones series spoilers, which don't really apply... If, you, if you're caught up on the show, none of this matters, because it doesn't, it doesn't even take place in the show. But in the latest book, Dance of Dragons, there's a couple characters that are introduced, one of which comes out of completely nowhere. As far as I'm aware, no foreshadowing, but... Knowing George R. R. Martin, there's probably some somewhere uh, that people on the internet have found. But there's a couple characters introduced in the latest book that one of them has an open ending, that, that his his story has an open ending, and like you're presumably going to find out more about what what he's doing in the next book. And the other one, he gets killed just horribly. Just, just dies. And his entire story throughout that book was essentially meaningless. Nothing that we can really see is going to happen from it. And I think this contributed a lot to a lot of people being upset with the latest book a little bit, feeling like the quality in the latest books, the last last couple of books, maybe have dropped off a bit. Because the last couple of books is when 
George R. R. Martin started introducing these characters that have their own chapters that are not any of the main characters. That So, like, they'll have maybe a chapter here, a chapter there. They'll show up in other people's chapters, but they won't have just a steady presence of their, of their character throughout the book. And they're just kind of like side characters that are more expendable and yeah. less satisfying. Part of the genre that he's writing in, part of the feel of the story, is that anyone can die. So it's obviously, it's more understandable why he does this than in other stories it might be. But when you're used to getting to know and love a character first, and then having them get killed off, it starts to feel cheap if you do it too often. And you just introduce a character and kill them off within the same book, after giving the impression that they're supposed to be a main character. Like, after after five books of doing it, it's you, you've, I, think, I feel like you've got to be careful how you how you do endings if you're doing a series. Yeah. Because they can, they can definitely become formulaic. For what it's worth, I think George R. R. Martin does a lot of defying genre conventions mm-hmm. just for the sake of it, not really to say that much. Like, he has in book, I think it's for Brand just wanders <laughs> around for an entire book for, like, 13 very long chapters. And accomplishes something. essentially nothing. Yeah. Yeah. There's no point. There's no point to her story. The the audience knows that there's no point to her story. Because they know, much. yeah, because they know that that she's not going to find what she's looking for. Right. The point of that, I think, was to give the audience some look at what life during warfare was like for peasants, mm-hmm. and to sort of do some more world building and stuff. Did not work for me at all. Um, yeah, but didn't work for a lot of people. Like, we had a friend who who was very angry with with the character in that book because they liked the character before that, but. The experience of reading them essentially just wandering around doing not much kind of ruined the character for them, and they actually liked in the in the move in in the TV show that they altered that storyline so that she actually had more impact and meaning and like interaction with everything else that was going on. Even though her quest was still ultimately kind of pointless, it it still threaded into the rest of the story much more than it did in the books. So it was it was a little better. Yeah, you're right. He is purposefully fucking convention of the genre. But that is a dangerous thing to do, I think. Yeah. Not not just genre conventions, but like narrative conventions. Yeah. I go on a lot about how our minds are sort of trained for books. For stories, um, yeah. For stories. And I think that that's one of the things you have to be really careful of with endings specifically. Because we're sort of primed to expect certain things out of endings. And you can subvert them in clever, interesting ways. But they have to be clever, interesting ways. Not just... Yeah. Not just, I, I know what a normal ending would, would do, and I'm going to do this other thing instead. Mm-hmm. Look how clever I am. I think that just pisses people off. Probably rightfully so. Because you need to be saying something if you're going to buck narrative convention like that. Right. There are a number of, of movies where alternate endings are kind of a thing, right? Where where people are like, oh, there's, there were these alternate endings that the, the directors or writers had in mind or that they filmed, but they ended up changing them for one reason or the other. Uh, and it's always, there's always a lot of there's a lot of interesting questions and, and discussion to be had about how, how people choose to end stories and, and what you can do with them. And what, what you'll usually see is that Hollywood will tend towards the less risky endings, towards the endings that kind of more satisfy what people expect. Not always. There's some people, there's some cases where they'll, they'll take more risky routes. They'll take more risky ch- chances with their endings. But in Hollywood, at least it is, they, they are very aware of what audiences like and don't like and will go for the one that sits the best with the most people. Yeah. And a lot of times they're wrong from an artistic perspective. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> they do, I mean... They kind of undermine... Uh, yeah, I mean, Hollywood knows what 
is a good narrative to most people. Mm -hmm. But they also do focus testing, and I think that's where they go wrong a lot. Terminator Salvation was number four. It takes place in the future, and it's uh, Christian Bale, I think, as an adult John Connor. But the original ending for that movie that um, got it got focus tested and then the audience didn't like it. So they went with something else. But the original ending was that this Terminator that you've been following that was sent to kill John Connor and has sort of like gained its humanity or whatever, it becomes John Connor when John Connor dies. And so it's sort of this like John Connor is more of a symbol than yeah. a like person and stuff like that. And I, I like that. Well, it wasn't going to be a great movie anyway, but, but I like that, that, that ending would have elevated it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, they do that a lot. You have to do a lot of behind-the-scenes reading or DVD extras mm. to hear people talk about that kind of stuff. But Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is, is one of my favorite contemporary movies, and its ending originally was for Scott to end up with knives, and it ended up with him ending with Ramona, uh, which was kind of the traditional, stereotypical ending for it to have had. And I feel like a lot of the criticism towards the movie which is justified, is made justified by the fact that they chose that ending. Whereas if they had gone with the him ending up with Knives ending, a lot of those criticisms wouldn't have had any weight, really. Because it, it was a good movie for breaking conventions of, like, you know, boy falls for a strange pretty girl, all these wacky adventures, kind of obsessive love, learning about self-respect and all that stuff. But then he ends up with her anyway, so it's like, it, it kind of undermines the, the message of the movie a little bit. Yeah, I really like that movie. I, I want to read the... Um... Comics, yeah, me too. The comics. I was gonna say manga, but people get upset. <laughs> no, it's. I think it, I would have called them manga too. I'm sure I have at some point, but yeah, I, I agree. I want to. I want to read the comics at some point. There's a another thing about movie endings, but also applies to books as the way the transition, right? When because I, I don't know how the end of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World the comic is, but I'm sure in the movie transition ending, uh, the movie the transition to the movie ending, clearly they had to choose something different because they've had these two alternate endings they chose from, and they ended up with one of them over the other. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of authors are very bad at endings. Stephen King yes. can, cannot... He has a couple good endings, but it, I think, owes something to his writing style, where he just... He writes and he writes and he writes, and then he ends the book. He doesn't go in, usually, thinking, okay, this is what the ending is, this is, like, my central conflict. He develops the conflict as he goes, and then develops a solution to that conflict when he gets to the end, when he's like, okay, I'm at a certain point and I got to end this book. Neil Stephenson does that too. Last time, last time I said this was proof that you don't really need to be good at endings because you can be a successful writer. Yeah. You can be a superstar, like best-selling author and just not be good at endings at all. Charles Strauss is another one. I don't fully agree with that criticism of it, but I see it often enough that I guess I'd put him in the same camp. But yeah, you you get to a certain point and you know that you have to end the book, but there's all this stuff to wrap up and you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it too quickly and you don't want to do it too slow and then you don't want to linger in your epilogues too much. Right, right. I watched The Lord of the Rings, all three movies, extended version, and oh my god, in that last movie, there are just so many endings. Yes, they have these ending beats that one of them works, two of them work, by the third one, you're like, when is this going to be over? Yeah. Even though they're all kind of important, you know, like each of the ending beats kind of say something different. It just, it feels like too much. 
Yeah, and that's part of this like narrative training that we undergo. Mm-hmm. That we know what an ending feels like. <laughs> and So when the ending comes and there's twenty minutes left in the movie, you're just kind of like, um And and you can actually trick people. A lot of people will walk out of a movie and they'll be like, Yeah, that was like a pretty good movie and then they're like they're thinking about it later and they're like, Wait a second, that didn't that didn't resolve anything. Right. <laughs> or that only resolved half the plot. Why why am I coming away from that? You can come away from a, a movie especially, because I think they're less introspective in mm-hmm. the moment. You come away feeling satisfied or feeling like it was like a proper ending. And then you realize that there are so many questions that were just left unanswered. I think mm-hmm. if you're a good author, you can leverage that a little bit to give that satisfied feeling and then leave enough questions that it's good. But I think you can make a satisfying ending that does not actually resolve that much or sort of hoodwinks the the reader right. or the viewer. Would you call that a dark art or would you call that just an alternate way of... Yeah, I'd call it dark arts. Yeah. There's a unique thing in, in reading books. I don't know how well it applies to books nowadays because we're moving to a, a largely virtual interface. Yeah. But when you're reading a book, you know how much is left. Right, and if you don't know whether there's a sequel or not, if you don't know if it's part of a series or not, if it's a it's a new release and, and you really have no idea what the future holds for the book, even within an individual book, you still know like the book is ending soon. And if you've got a lot of questions left and you've got a lot of you see a bunch of unfinished threads, sometimes you start to panic a little bit. You're like, there's no way the author is gonna wrap all this up in in, in this like this tiny little bit of paper left in my hands. You know, he's got like maximum 20 pages. How how are they possibly gonna wrap everything up? I think that contributes to part of the reason that that readers of stories are more likely to notice unsatisfying endings in books. And it it comes also from this idea that for the writer, especially for published works, you have a editor who is there helping you fix things up to make them better. And good authors listen to their editors as best they can while maintaining their artistic integrity of of the vision that they have. Uh, Because a good editor's you know, share that vision and, and, and push for it. But I'm sure there are many stories that have endings that are maybe overlong, quote-unquote, or go into more detail wrapping things up than they need to, and then they get cut down and maybe streamlined a little bit, and that can leave people with feeling like the ending is, is rushed or not as satisfactory as they might otherwise have been. And that goes back to the idea that endings are hard, right? You, you Because there's this sweet spot of wrap up all the things that need to be wrapped up, but don't stretch it out too long past the climax of the story otherwise people start to feel a little bit restless yeah Yeah. especially because there's such a thing as a fake ending right yes you can just put you can put in a an ending at like the two-thirds mark is usually where it'd go and then there's still something there's still some you know someone who is pulling the strings who has to be dealt with yeah or something like that the hero thinks that everything is fine everything's been beaten and then there's like another beat to the story left that's fairly common especially in like serial works because mm-hmm. you can't especially in serials you want to stretch things out or you want to have like continued conflicts one after another just perpetually for half a million words or something. yeah so you have fake endings like that and people are conditioned to those as well now yeah so you have to be careful if your ending is too long people will think like oh god are they setting me up for like something bittersweet like the hero saves the day and then his wife dies of cancer or something you know Mm -hmm. people do get restless and that contributes to not liking the ending yeah this is why it's important to know the ending before you 
get there. <laughs> right? Like it, it's, it helps to know what how you're going to end your story. You don't have to know it to start your story. But if you can get at least some idea of how you want to end the story, it helps a lot. And even if the ending changes, which I think is, I think probably happens more often than it doesn't. I think in cases where authors have an ending in mind, a lot of the time they will get to their ending and at least something major, you know, maybe not the entire thing, but like something, some noticeable part of it will have changed by then. And that's okay. Like it's okay for the story to evolve as you're writing it. I think it's natural for it to do so. And in rational stories, it absolutely should do so. Because if you've, if you're capable of thinking through absolutely everything with a story before you even put the first words down or write the first chapter, I don't know. I, like, I feel like that's a, a inhuman feat. Yeah. Or is just the result of focusing way too much on planning and not enough time on writing. But, you know, if you can do it, that's great. I just don't think it's a realistic expectation to set. So it's okay to have an ending in mind. It's okay to know that that ending might change. And, the problem might come when you reach the end and realize that there are still all these unanswered questions and you kind of just like hastily try to wrap them up with the ending that you already thought of in the beginning. You know, just like, don't just ignore all the changes that have come to the story, ignore all the evolution of characters that didn't turn out quite as I originally imagined them and, and went in all these different directions. But I already decided that these two characters end up together and this character ends up dying and this person ends up doing this. And so I've got to end it that way regardless, and it just kind of ends up for a lot of people feeling not quite right. Yeah. So ambiguity in endings. I tend to like it. I tend to... Uh, there, there are some people who will finish a book that has a somewhat ambiguous ending, or a very ambiguous ending, and they'll just be like, well, what was the point? I just mm -hmm. wanted the answer, you know? To pick a movie example, Inception... Like the question of whether he's in a dream or not. Right. A lot of people were just did not like that. They just uh, wanted they wanted the answer. Right. A lot of people did like it and were very happy to go into like the minutia of like whether he was in a dream or not and like details and like dissecting the movie minute by minute as if they could find a definitive answer. Like as if the director didn't specifically put that ending so that there was there wouldn't be an answer in place. Uh, but not not to say that you can't still dissect it and find an answer. But the, the deliberate choice of the author to make the ending ambiguous can be done artfully well. Yeah. And I think that uh, you you need to make sure you're not doing it as a cop out. Yes. Absolutely. Like, I mean, if you're, if your movie is a meditation on the nature of reality, then I think an ambiguous ending is good. I think that if your movie is about like mobsters, mm -hmm. crime and stuff, and you just, you just black out <laughs> as sort of a way of saying something about the world or, mm -hmm. That, like, this story is going to continue, I think that's a lot less good. Yeah. There's... Okay, so so when it comes to ambiguous endings, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some Stephen King stories now. The Mist is a novella. Uh, originally, it was in a, a short story collection. It was the first one of the short stories, and it was much longer than the rest of them. It's novella-sized, and um, it was very good. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Uh, it has a super ambiguous ending, in the sense that the world is basically just covered in monsters. And this strange mist seems to be everywhere. And these people are just driving in a car, you know, desperately, you know, grabbing some food and gas along the way as they just drive through America that's covered in, in mist and monsters everywhere. And they get a radio transmission. This guy's writing a journal and he, he's, he's just basically saying, you know, I'm almost out of space on this journal. I'll leave it somewhere for in case anyone finds it. And it's a radio transmission that says there's a city name and the word hope. 
and they're just hoping basically that they'll they'll go there and be able to find some kind of answer to what to do next and quite a lot of people uh like that ending quite a, people, a lot of people didn't the movie choice was to scrap that ending completely and have the characters run out of gas in the car and everyone just kind of looks at each other for a bit not like knowing what's coming and not knowing what to do about it and the father just takes a gun shoots everyone in the head including his son and then with no with not enough bullets left for himself goes out of the car and starts screaming and for the monsters to come and get him and kill him and just at that moment the mists clear in front of him and army trucks start going by and he's just left like screaming in wordless anguish about what he'd done and a lot of people apparently liked that movie stephen king reportedly said it was he thought it was better than his ending i don't believe him <laughs> i don't like not to say that he can't think that but like you know people say things about their works that get adapted to movies all the time uh for publicity reasons that or contractual reasons and i think that ending was not good for a lot of reasons but the thing I'll just focus on is this is a clear a clear decision between an ambiguous ending and a non-ambiguous ending. And in the non-ambiguous ending, you get a resolution that is not quite clear-cut, right? It's you know that the military is now here, you know that they're fighting back against the monsters, presumably the, the mist is not going to win. In the other ending, it's full of questions. You don't know what the state of the government is like. You don't know how many survivors there are in other places. You don't know what the fate of these main characters are going to be. But it leaves you with a emotion that is very specific and I think driven by the story. And I think when you write an ambiguous ending, accomplishing that emotion is what's important. The Inception movie does it very well because the emotion that it leaves you with is this kind of ongoing unease and not knowing of what's, what's true and what's not true. The idea of the movie being in dreams and not knowing for sure what's, what reality is. And the mist does it by kind of this ending of of dread and existential existential worry. Uh, the recent movie that came out, somewhat recent now, it's, it's been a few years. Clo- Ten Cloverfield Lane. Have you seen it? Nope. I will not talk about it then. It's a really good movie. Go watch it. Okay. <laughs> um. So, but yeah, if you're gonna end your story ambiguously, the reason to end them ag- ambiguously, I think, is is to end them on a particular emotional note that you want to convey. And that's how I judge good ambiguous endings versus bad ones. Yeah, and there aren't that many emotions that, to me, you can convey with ambiguity. Ambiguity always says something, right? Mm-hmm. If you make a like a romance or a movie that has like a romantic element to it, and you add ambiguity into that romance, that's not. I mean, you're you're saying a very specific thing about that romance or right. about love in particular. If you do a movie that's about like politics, and there's sort of this ambiguous ending to it you're saying something about politics there that's specific to ambiguity right Mm -hmm. watchmen i guess has a very ambiguous ending where like the the main conflict has been resolved but there's still this chance that everything will unravel with with the with the journal yeah and that was sort of like watchmen in a lot of ways was this meditation on control and power and there's this running theme of the watchmaker and that that ambiguity is used to to sort of offer a critique of that right but if you're doing that ambiguous thing then you're saying something very specific about whatever your topic is 
it's something to use, be used very very delicately. Mm-hmm. So yeah, ambiguous endings can definitely leave you with particular emotional notes. But if that emotional note that they leave you on is absolutely everything is terrible or like horrendous grief or even anger, maybe it, that's usually a downer ending. And the mist, the movie had a downer ending. Some other stories and, and movies have downer endings that I think are, are better than those. The movie Seven definitely has a downer ending. You've seen it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a killer who has a philosophy. And his philosophy, even though the killer is stopped, his philosophy is justified by the ending. And so even though you know that the killer is gone and he's not going to hurt anyone else... You know, he does quite a lot of killing and a lot of people who didn't necessarily deserve to die. And there's a very tragic death or two that occur by the ending. The real downer of the ending is not who died. It's the idea that the the killer's philosophy was proven correct. And it leaves you meditating on that. And I think that was that's one of the best downer endings I think I've ever seen. Yeah. 1984? Yes. Yeah. yeah. has a big downer ending. But it's because... It's. I, I think it'd be very easy to write a dystopia where everything gets taken down mm-hmm. at the end, and it there's like. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of uh, young adult dystopias have that as a feature, right? It's a dystopia, but the brave young the scrappy girl, spirits. Yes, if 1984 yeah. was written today, it would star teenagers falling in love and breaking the system. Yeah, and I, I think it would they would it would lose its impact by doing so. This isn't a criticism of modern-day dystopian novels, by the way. They they serve their own purpose and have their own value. But 1984 specifically was partially as impactful as it was because of its ending. Yeah, but as with ambiguity, you have to be very careful with the downer ending. Because a lot of people will come away from it and just feel unsatisfied. Yeah, The Giver was a, was one of these where a lot of people just didn't... They didn't first of all, they didn't know what the end, if the ending meant what it seemed to mean. Because people were like... Did they survive? Were they hallucinating? What happened? But overall, it felt like a downer ending, because not just because of that ambiguity, but because it seemed fairly hopeless for them. Yeah, and I think that's... It's a matter of what you're going for in your ending, and what sort of emotional note that you're gonna trying to hit. I think downer endings can work really well, but you shouldn't just do them to subvert the, the good ending that people expect. You shouldn't, you mean, right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. We talked before about endings in terms of if they have a if you have a happy ending, leave a bittersweet note, and if you have a downer ending, leave a thread of hope. Yeah, is is kind of how I how I think of it. And there are movies and books that do that seem to attempt to try this and don't quite get the balance right. That's okay. It's not it's not an easy thing to do. It's gonna it's your your mileage may vary uh, is in full effect here. A lot of people can disagree on these. On, on these endings, and, and that's fine. But I feel like that, that does a good job of at least keeping a, a good balance between not keep not making the ending too depressing and, and soul-crushing that it just feels all pointless, uh, unless, again, that's specifically what you're going for, what you're trying to do, and not making the ending too saccharine, too overly sweet. Yeah, I would suggest if you are trying to crush someone's soul, think very hard about that uh, <laughs> when you're like writing a novel. Yeah. But a lot of people, a lot of people go for that in their in their mm. literature. I will say that um, there are endings that are downer endings that are seem they seem pointlessly downer endings and pointlessly rocks fall, everyone dies in a, in a sense. 
Yeah. I've I've railed against a hundred years of solitude before. It, it has an ending that is absolutely the worst kind of ending for any kind of piece of media that I've consumed. I think in my life, and it's just shy of the just shy of the everyone wakes up and it was all a dream kind of thing. Just really stupid, pointless, no no questions answered, very very vaguely, very vaguely an ending at all. There are other books that are that are probably worse on an objective sense, but after slogging through the long and tedious book that it was, it just kind of was insult to injury. And I'm sure there are people out there who enjoyed that ending. You know, I'm sure, like, uh, my stepbrother actually really enjoyed the book and, and the ending. But when you're writing that ending, I, I feel like it's it's not hard to tell when the author does it purposefully and not, and when they just kind of stop because they don't know what else to do. They don't know how else to end their story. Yeah. And I think that should be avoided regardless of what the outcome is to to the reader because as as an author your job kind of is to think things through if you're especially if you're a rational writer right like if you're just a regular writer who's doesn't particularly care about the rationalist genre maybe it doesn't bother you as much if your ending is kind of slapdash and haphazard and you're like oh it's up to the reader they'll get what they can out of it and uh, my job is done but i feel like if you're trying to make your story rational you want your ending to be as thought through as possible regardless of whether or not everyone agrees on how you ended or or has get takes away what you want from it yeah so downer endings can be very strategically deployed if you are writing in series yes empire strikes back mm-hmm. obviously half-blood prince i think was that for harry potter yeah for harry potter it's very very much a downer ending for that one book and then you end happy after that mm-hmm. which i think is i think that's good practice to have sort of a Hope is lost at the end, so long as you let people know there's a sequel. Right. So yeah, stories with endings that you enjoyed. I'm going to pick some controversial ones here. Okay. <laughs> because I feel like there are a lot of endings that everyone likes that we can all agree are great. I will say that I am one of the few people I know who likes the ending to the Dark Tower series. I don't know if you've read it. I have not, but I know the ending. Okay, yeah. So the Dark Tower series has a kind of iterated world, iterated multiverse timeline, where Roland finds the Dark Tower and kind of resets every time he finds the Dark Tower. That's the kind of the cruel joke that's being that reality is cyclical in that nature. It's kind of a theme throughout the story, and it's really tragic. You know, when you're reading the series and, and you finally get to the ending. The ending of the of the book was bad in a lot of ways. Like, the, the second half of the last book, a lot of things just seemed to be... Just seemed to not work. They were kind of... They felt either rushed or not thought through, or they just... They felt anticlimactic in a lot of ways. There was a lot of anticlimax in the last Dark Tower book. I love the series regardless, but the, the second half of that last book was very much disappointing in a number of ways. But I liked the ending a lot because... It ends on, it's that symmetry that you like in yeah. beginnings endings. The, the last line of the series is the first line of the, of the series. And it works really well in that emotional, to me anyway, it worked really well in that emotional, like, this is all, like, the, the cause wheel is the line that, that is seen throughout the series. Ka means, uh, destiny. But it doesn't quite cop out the way that everyone acts like it does in my view. So everyone seems to hate it because they're like, oh, it's all meaningless and he's just doing the same thing over and over again and nothing gets resolved. But that's not really true because every time he resets, something changes based on what he does. And there's a kind of weird like deterministic versus choice thing going on. And in this particular ending of the books, 
there was an important artifact called the Hornveld that he doesn't use. I mean, doesn't uh, doesn't keep the whole journey. A friend of his dies, and and he had the horn with him, and and Roland had the choice to go back for the horn, and didn't end up going back for it because it, it was like a huge firefight, and he almost died. Uh, so he just he kind of got made it out with his life at the last moment, and left the horn behind, and always always regretted that. But in this in this restart at the very end of the book, he has the horn, and it's a signal to the to the readers that things are going to something is something has changed this time, and things are going to be different this time. It's not necessarily going to be an endless cycle of misery and you know, misplaced hope. And, like, maybe the Dark Tower will eventually hold absolution for him. The movie that's coming out, I believe, I've, I've heard rumors that in the movies, he's going to have the horn. So you can kind of see it as a continuation of the books. Uh, if he does have the horn, it is explicitly a continuation of the books, actually. Which is cool, I think, because the entire premise of the Dark Tower series is that there's a multiverse, and there's all these different universes where different things are happening. And the Dark Tower storyline is important because it takes place in... in the central universe. And so the idea of fan fiction or other books by even other authors at some point continuing the story of, of the Dark Tower with this this ending, with this thread of hope that is in this downer ending worked really well for me. Oh. Yeah, I think I, I, I have a particular fondness for not time loop, but movies that play with their own causality mm -hmm. and then incorporate that into the ending. There's a this I think Spanish... Uh, movie Time Crimes. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Los Crono Crimenes. <laughs> that, I thought, it sort of is a tragedy, mm -hmm. but it, like, wraps back on itself, and it, it fires all of its all of its foreshadowing, and all the stuff that you, by the middle of the movie, you know is going to happen, mm -hmm. has happened. I really like that. Um, there was a movie I watched recently on Netflix that was not great, but the ending, it was called Arc. I think with a Q, <laughs> not recommended. Okay. Unless you're like really into that kind of thing, but it, it had a Groundhog Day kind of plot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and this guy keeps dying, and then he wakes up, like in his bed, and he has to like figure things out. Like he he realizes he's trapped in this loop, and there are these other characters, and it's sort of implied at the end that. This is just a continual cycle Right. that he's going to, you know, go through the, his Groundhog Day loop for like 10 or 15 times or something. And then he's going to reset the computer and the whole Groundhog Day loop is itself going to loop right? with no knowledge whatsoever. But right at the very end, like they sort of hit that note kind of like, oh, this is all like pointless and hopeless. And this loop is stuck there and it's going to happen forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And then instead of him waking up, it's the the woman he was in bed with next to at the very beginning of the movie. At the mm. beginning of every and I thought that was it didn't make that much sense <laughs> given the how the technology was explained. But I thought it was a very clever way of saying, okay, this this story is gonna continue and it's not just pointless and hopeless. Right. It was that it was that thread of new conflict, I guess. Mm -hmm. Something like that. I don't know. But it it stuck with me for a long time. More than that movie deserved. Right. <laughs> the, this is this is the one of the ways that endings can be redeeming, in a way. They they can they can help elevate a otherwise poorly done story. Then then they can ruin them too. Lots of endings ruin ruin good stories. Yeah. I don't know. My favorite endings. Uh, see, my problem is my favorite endings are always the sort of bordering on saccharine ones. Mm -hmm. I just I like when the good guy wins and defeats the bad guy, mm -hmm. and there's like 
some kind of romance and then they're together at the end. Now, the reason I like and the reason I write rational fiction is because a lot of times authors will take shortcuts to get there. And you want to, like. yeah, you want to earn that ending. Yeah, I, I want to earn that ending. I don't just want it to happen because that's, you know, right. The ending to Die Hard is John McClane has reconnected with his wife, who he's sort of estranged from at the beginning of the film. And it just doesn't, you know, it was completely irrelevant to the story. It just happens. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it, it sort of makes sense, but their underlying issues haven't changed at all. Right. Right. The movie so, was, the movie was not about how John McClane changes as a person or how his wife changes as a person to make the relationship work better. Right. They just, they come out and they're like, oh yeah, we're like, our marriage is fixed now. Th- that's we went not, through this crazy thing. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to fix the underlying problems with your marriage. So I'm just, I just like walk away. And I mean, obviously that holds in the sequels mm-hmm. where, um, <laughs> this terrorist attack does not actually save their marriage, but the end of the movie kind of makes you want to feel like it does. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that a lot, especially in movies, especially in action movies where personal problems just get solved by someone being a badass. Right. One, another book that I really enjoyed the ending of was Stephen King's The Stand, where it kind of ends on this question of, you know, like the world's been essentially stopped, right? Like uh, there's 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 a society rebuilding in America, at least one of that the main characters are part of. There's some, some other societies rebuilding, presumably around the world. There's survivors that are reforming the cities and stuff. But it ends on this idea, that, and like the bad guys have been defeated, and, you know, the survivors... What, what 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 good guys have survived are are kind of not celebrating exactly, but happy to be happy to be alive, happy to to have made it through this this like huge ordeal of of the super plague and the aftermath and and the the bad guys rising and everything. And they're just kind of watching their son play on the grass and and thinking about all those empty warehouses full of weapons and all those missile silos sitting there waiting to be found for the knowledge of how to use them, waiting to be relearned. And, you know, it's very much still a question about what's going to happen with to, to the future of the world, because whether or not humans learned from this is the question that they want to know. Like, do you think, do you think we've changed as a result of this? Like, do you think we'll be able to, to teach our children and they'll be able to teach their children's children? Like, how many generations will it take for this experience to, to teach people, like, you know, to do things different? And the the book doesn't have an answer for this, obviously, because any answer they give would be unsatisfying, really, to some people. But it it does it, it ends on the I don't know question because this was the point the story wants to, to to leave you with, and I think it does a really good job of of doing that after everything that you've been through and seeing human nature, like the best of human nature and the worst of human nature in these extreme circumstances. Yeah, it's got that a little bit of that ambiguity, mm-hmm. right? None of the main characters' stories are ambiguous. Like they're all fairly wrapped up, more or less. But the the central, if you if you consider the human races uh, conflict, it's it's still ongoing, and and it very much is a story about society, you know, and how we how we organize and and what we how we how we react to the the breaking down of structures. A lot of zombie movies are like this too. A lot of this, uh, post-apocalyptic stories are like this. Yeah, except for those that that have downer endings. Yeah, just kill but everyone off. <laughs> the, the, the Dawn of the Dead remake. That's they are all like living in this mall together, um, and they're like shooting zombies, or whatever. And they do this escape, 
at the end in a boat to get to, to get to this boat and then in the after credits they like land on this island and there's zombies and they're like out of water and stuff i thought that was the right <laughs> the right tone for a zombie movie. right right much more than the sort of a, you, you get this happy apocalypse type thing a lot of, a lot of time where zombie land yeah i like zombie land by the way and it's ending uh it worked for me but i can definitely yeah it, it definitely is the alternative to this kind of like you know we're gonna be okay. Yeah, I, I think that it's a lot of people. They'll, they'll write a story about an apocalypse, and then the story is kind of about how great it is that everyone is dead, <laughs> dancing on the graves of the world. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like, oh, like we can rebuild and we're gonna make this awesome society because we don't have any of this crap around anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people who are sort of dissatisfied with civilization will will write books like that. That there, this apocalypse happens, but it's really this great thing because all these people died. Yeah. Something something that I have to mention is there's a kind of cop-out in endings that I think is all too common, which is main character sacrifices himself. And this is something that you can tell, like, when it first started happening, the main character dies. It's very, like, surprising and sad and, like, emotionally satisfying when it's done right and has a good reason to happen. And then it just started getting copied and copied and copied to the point that it didn't. It stopped even making sense. Like the writers would contrive a way to kill the main character off, to in order to force this kind of happy, sad ending, this bittersweetness to the ending. It's kind of an artificial bittersweetness. Elysium does this, where they just kind of invent this techno babble reason why the main character has to die in order for them to save everyone, and they just they you know they do it, and of course they die, and it's just like he will always be remembered, and everyone's happy. And I am Legend does this. I, I want to say it's very transparent when it happens. I don't know if it's just transparent to, to people who are paying attention or not. I haven't like gone around polling people, but these are these are generally not movies that have done it well. I mean, generally movies that that do it are not able to pull it off well. And I think one of the reasons for that is you need a character to choose to sacrifice themselves when their sacrifice is is meaningful beyond the, the context of their situation. Yeah. Right. If the for, if the choice is forced on them and they choose to sacrifice themselves, like that's kind of the common way to do it. Because they, because you know, obviously they have no choice but to do the heroic thing. Right. If they can have an ending that is happy but not as happy, and they choose to sacrifice themselves for the happiest ending for the most people, I feel like that's more impactful. Yeah. I don't know. I I think it, a lot of times it's a it's a cop out. Or it's just a way of showing how great a character is mm-hmm. that they ha- like have to do this this thing and like prove their heroism by like making the ultimate sacrifice. I don't know. I I tend to not like I, I tend to not like it. Yeah, here, I guess. Yeah, making it a choice might be the major problem I have with it. As as weird as that sounds, like if someone chooses to do something that they know is dangerous, and they they get mortally wounded in the midst of doing that dangerous thing. Like that's okay because it's just a natural consequence of the of the of their heroic choice in the first place, right? But if like if they are choosing to be this hero, if they're choosing to do this heroic thing, and then they get through it okay, but then they're forced to make a choice that decides for them, like okay, you have to die now, by the way, if you want to save the world. To me, that's that's the problem. That's where it becomes artificial. And it makes it it makes it a problem not just because it, it cheapens the danger of the situation that they were in, right? It was like, oh, you, of course they couldn't just get shot or something by all the bullets that were whizzing around them because they're the hero. They need the spotlight on them before they can die heroically. But it also just doesn't it doesn't feel as, as realistic to real life circumstances. Like heroes die from choosing to do heroic things because of the, the dangerous thing that they choose to do. 
not because they because they have the time to make a a clear cut like I will sacrifice my life for you all circumstance most of the time. Um, people, uh, children of men, did this kind of really well. Have you seen Children of Men? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll talk uh, about the book. Yeah, I haven't read the book. I, I, I was like, is it good? Should I read it? Uh, not really. It's a okay. little mired in its own depression, I guess. Mm-hmm. For me, the movie, the, the movie, I felt like had just enough of that. With it, that didn't get annoying, but I actually had some problems with the movie. But I'm not gonna get into it now because it's yeah. But I feel like the ending worked okay because he just he chose to do something that he knew was dangerous to help this girl and help potentially save the human race, and in so doing, lost his life while doing so. And that's fine. That's the the risk that heroes take, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's a matter of agency to some extent. Mm-hmm. I think that if you get a little, you run risks by injecting too much agency. But that's probably a conversation for another time. Yeah, that's that. That's that bittersweetness um, in the end, in a happy ending that I like. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we'll probably talk more about endings. I'm sure in many in many episodes to come. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the outro music for another book recommendation. And uh, what are we talking about next time? Okay, I don't know if you have any ideas, but I personally would like to do a um, like a D and D role playing type thing, and Ooh. its applicability to writing. Ooh, that's great! Yeah, I've I've written a number of articles on this, so I'm more than happy to talk about that. Yeah, dungeon mastering for a long time. So yeah. All right, so yeah, hope you join us next time for role playing and storytelling, and the connection between playing tabletop RPGs and being a writer. Thanks for listening. Audible is offering a free 30-day trial with book credit for anyone who'd like to support the show. This week I'm recommending the Merchant Princess series by Charles Strauss. The story starts as a fairly standard portal fantasy, but it's heavily deconstructionist take on the genre. For one, Miriam Beckstein is a 30-something tech journalist rather than a teenager or author stand-in. For another, there's a heavy focus on economics and socio-cultural matters rather than raw exploitation of technology or knowledge of the modern world. The ending, which I'll leave unspoiled, was my favorite part of the book, and that's the reason that I'm recommending it this week. But one of the things I really appreciated was that in terms of exploitation, this was a very lived-in world, where the clan of Worldwalkers had already tried all the obvious stuff, and where strategies and counter-strategies had been deployed back and forth for years by the time the protagonist finally shows up. Strauss, as always, shows a heavy attention to detail in the way he writes, which sometimes verges on being detrimental to the work, but for me strikes just the right balance. There are six books in the series, or three if you're reading the condensed versions. The Merchant Princess series has the benefit of being complete, so you can race straight through it if you'd like. If you'd like to listen to the first book, Family Trade, now you can go to www.audibletrial.com rational.